Hello, hello, Brattleboro, and welcome to this episode of the Montpelier Happy Hour here on WVEWLP Brattleboro, 107.7 FM, your community radio station. I am your host. This is the Montpelier Happy Hour, and I have on the phone two guests today. One, our regular contributor, Representative Emily Kornheiser. Hey, Emily. Hey, Olga. And then also, I want to welcome to the show... Drew Wrestley, who is uh, in the same room with Emily. So I just want to let everyone know that if you hear me interrupting folks more, it's because I can't actually see these guys today. Uh, but Drew, thank you for joining the show. Thanks so much. Hey, Open. So glad you both can be here. And as folks know, we, Emily and I, had held a number of conversations about civics and free speech and public places and building policy around that. And as always, as we talk about things that shake out for Wyndham County that happen in Montpelier, Emily, I would love you to tell us a little bit about this next phase of conversations we're going into. Yeah, absolutely. So we're spending this off-season of legislation really framing the assumptions and the structures that have formed the legislation that moves forward during the session. So we had a month of talking about public process, public participation, how conversations happen, how the media works. And then we spent a month talking about how we legislate morality and whether that works and doesn't and what some other perspectives on that might be. And now we're diving into, I shouldn't have favorites, but I do, (laughs) (laughs) money and really trying to unpack how state finances particularly work because so often we're told that something is possible or not possible because of funding. And that's the end of the conversation. So I want to make sure that our listeners, that constituents, that community members understand a little bit more about the black locks of the state budget. Fantastic. Oh, go ahead. And so today I'm really excited to talk to Drew about the agency food services, about grants, about this big funny part of our fairly small state government. So Drew, I would love it if you could just let the audience know a little bit about yourself and a little bit about um, your connection to the Agency of Human Services. Absolutely. So I have been working with the Agency of Human Services um, for about six years, and my role is Director of Performance Improvement. Um, sorry, Echo was really distracting. And um, I'm in the Secretary's office. So the agency is encompassing six departments. We have the Department of Corrections, which is unique. Most states don't have the Department of Corrections within their agency. We have the Department of Public Health, the Department of Vermont Health Access, which is the Medicaid Administrator. We have the Department for Children and Families, and the Department of Mental Health. Oh, also the Department of Disabilities, Aging, and Independent Living. We represent about half of state government, including the budget. Um, my work in the agency is centered in the conversation around integrating services across 
the whole organization. Hmm. The purpose of integrating would be to offer more holistic services to Vermonters. So the reason that I think about grants and our system around grants management is because grants are, and the written agreements there, are the way that we facilitate most of our community engagement with Vermonters. So, and so, although, um, and I were talking through before we got on the um, radio today, and the echo is distracting, so I'm sorry to all the listeners for Drew and I, I actually speaking clearly as we usually do. <laughs> and, and just so you both know, uh, sorry about the echo, we actually aren't hearing it on my end. That's very good to know. Thank you. <laughs> so um, we were talking about the reason I want to talk to you about this today, Drew, is that I think for a lot of Vermonters, while the Agency of Human Services might be half of state government and half of state funding, they don't have a self-experience of that because so much of that money and so many of those services are delivered in communities by non-state entities. So when we think about accountability there and we think about people's experience of government services, they're not experiencing that as government. Mm -hmm. They're experiencing that as community partners. Mm -hmm. And so that whole network of grants is invisible to so many people. Right. And I really want people to understand their relationship to government better than they do. Absolutely. That's part of what I'm like want to unpack today. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. Yes. Do you want me to respond to that directly? Please. Um, Today, this afternoon, I was I was trying to answer some of my own questions about grants before this conversation, and so I just decided to go to a couple of community partner websites, and community partners, the organizations that community members know, um, we refer to as community partners, this, like, very special relationship, just to see if there was evidence anywhere on the website of the Agency of Human Services relationship, and there wasn't. I was looking for, um, honestly, any indication that either the organization was a grant recipient of the Agency of Human Services or which department they had a primary relationship with, um, and I couldn't find it. And I think that was important for me to see. Um, The way that I access community partners, community organizations delivering services is through the lens of to what extent we have shared shared goals or ideas of best practice, to what extent we believe that we are um, working together, um, enabling each other to do different things or learn different things, um, and to what extent we're actually having quite separate experiences. Mm -hmm. So, Drew, just to make it really concrete for listeners, what are some, either if you can name them directly, that would be great, or some examples of what, who are community partners? And what kind of services people might be accessing with them, Mm -hmm. through them? I think one way of answering that question is to think about some of our statewide networks of partners. So the parent-child centers of Vermont, for instance. And so in Brattleboro or Windham County, that would be early education services. Okay, good. The designated agencies, which deliver mental health and substance use services. And so that's HCRS in Windham County, and that's you know, the vast majority of their budget and the rules that they follow come through state government. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, the preferred providers, which are substance use 
um, providers, which may include that's HCRS and the retreat and a few other partners. Mm-hmm. The community action agencies, which are delivering a lot of a lot of critical economic services to Vermonters. So if we think about SESCO, the way they provide fuel assistance, the way um, weatherization services happen, as well as a number of other programs that they have. Mm-hmm. The area agencies on aging are another huge network. And so senior solutions. Mm-hmm. And the hospitals. I mean, those are some great examples. And then also in Brattleboro, um, two agencies that we think about a lot is Groundworks mm-hmm. with their housing services and mm-hmm. programs. Mm-hmm. And then... Um, these services where I work feels very relevant to me because that's where I work. And so it's amazing that when we in the legislature are tweaking programming or tweaking our vision for outcomes, the way that instruction goes to the Agency of Human Services, that statute goes to the Agency of Human Services, but it's our community partners on the ground that mm-hmm. are carrying that out. Yeah, absolutely. Very interesting. Good distinctions. Uh, Drew and and Emily, I really appreciate that because I think there are some big uh, picture concepts here, but on the ground they can look very different for the people who are actually into, uh, using the services. One other thing before we go on, I just want to touch base with you, Drew, is you had meant you had used the term integrated services. Um, I think I know what you mean, but for my sake and the sake of listeners who may not know, uh, would you just kind of define what that's supposed to look like as well? Yes. So I think there's a lot of different ways to think about it, but the simplest way that I think about it is by trying to understand what does an unintegrated system look like (laughs) or what does that even mean? Um, And I think if you think about one experience of let's just say like an average family living in Vermont, Um, you may be enrolled in the state Medicaid program for your health insurance. Um, You may be interacting with any number of um, individuals in the healthcare system, but one of the individuals or organizations that's helping you to do that would be Vermont Health Connect and the Department of Vermont Health Access behind it that manages the Medicaid program and sets Medicaid policy, including what's being covered in your healthcare plan. Mm -hmm. So that one family that an individual or several individuals may be enrolled in Medicaid may also, at one point or another, be interacting with the Department of Corrections. There are, um, in every corner of the state, community corrections, um, probation and parole offices where people who have been um, incarcerated or who have been charged with something and are working with corrections are stopping in. Um, so you may have a probation officer in your life. If you, for a second, think about someone coming out of prison, let's just say, re-entering the community, maybe looking for housing, maybe looking for a job, um, uh, and looking for health care, you'd think that an organization that delivers both of those services might be able to just quickly re-enroll somebody in their health insurance. That mm. currently doesn't happen as seamlessly as you might expect. And so, or hope. And so, an example of sort of unintegrated, just one tiny microcosm of an unintegrated um, picture is that is that someone coming out of a period of incarceration, their supervision is being managed by the Agency of Human Services, and their healthcare insurance could be being managed by the Agency of Human Services at the same time. Um, may not be an actually coordinated mechanism. And so, on Thank the ground, you. we have an individual who's navigating all of those different service systems. 
Um, and so their lived experience might be that they have to go to one office to get their health insurance, yeah. and they have to go to one office for their corrections, and they have to go to another office for their supervision or their community accountability work, and another office to find child care for right. their child they haven't seen in a long time and are recently interacting with. And even though all of that money is coming from the same place, they're experiencing that as 16 different locations. Yeah. And you have, are, are you saying that you have the opportunity to maybe, <laughs> in an ideal world, integrate that experience for the person on the ground? Yes, thank you, Because Emily. it is integrated up here in AHF Central? The idea that we're all, that so many different types of services that could be assisting a family holistically at any given time or meeting multiple needs at once is not effectively able to do that. I think even from a policy perspective and in Waterbury or in the central offices feels disconnected is evidenced on the ground. I think um, even in one, I mean, to tie it back to grants for a second, one organization, um, so you talked about Groundworks, mm-hmm. one organization like Groundworks could and in fact is receiving multiple grants from different agency of human services departments. And those grants in and of themselves have funds associated with them rules associated with how um, services should be delivered. Meaning who is eligible and who's not, what paperwork needs to be kept, mm-hmm. when someone might be kept in the program, when someone might be asked to leave the mm-hmm. program. Standards of quality, even sometimes even um, like specific interest and fairly rigidly defined approaches. Maybe not as groundwork. I can't think off the top of my head, but an organization might be asked to sort of constrain the way that they would otherwise deliver services in order to meet that particular requirement. Continuing, con- including how often they might talk to the person or not talk to the person. Exactly. And then on top of that um, constraint around what they actually do, the, that organization may have to submit, will have to submit a report sort of documenting how did things go, what did we do. That's one mechanism of accountability that's, that is seen in grants. Um, so now imagine that Groundworks has like six grants with different AHS departments. They have to manage the differently constructed constraints across all those program areas and all the accountability mechanisms that follow, like the reports, the data collection, the storytelling, when in fact the actual opportunity to deliver those services in an unconstrained way, like maybe perhaps more intuitively to meet multiple needs or to address a family in a particular way that accomplishes all those grant interests at once is there. Mm-hmm. But the, the structure around the delivery of the dollars, the expectations of the services, and the ask for accountability along these sort of specific silos makes it difficult to deliver holistic services or feel like it's a holistic system supporting just general well-being. I see this play out in two, and only you're really going to have to jump in if you want to interrupt on this. <laughs> no, I'm fascinated. Um, I'm I really fascinated. I see playing itself out in two really diametrically opposed ways in my life. So in the legislature, we actually started the day together in a government accountability committee meeting. And so in the legislature, I very much want to support our committees and my peers and my colleagues in being able to monitor how some programs that we create by state statute are delivering. And so I know that we need some program-specific data if we're going to be monitoring programs. 
Ideally, I don't think we should actually be monitoring programs, but we are, and so we need data for that. And then on the ground, on my other job, what I see is we um, have, as a program director, I am managing one or two programs that are fed by maybe 15 grants. And it's really important to me as a director to make sure the folks that I supervise are delivering a unified, consistent program that meets all of our grant requirements universally, essentially, in a seamless way. Mm -hmm. And I do a lot of work to make that happen. Mm -hmm. And so we'll call it two programs. But when I talk to our finance director about it on the ground, she thinks I'm running 15 programs. Wow. And when I even talk to her about billing, she'll say, is it this program or that program? Mm -hmm. And I'm like, Mm -hmm. well, you should bill everything to this place because the contract's going to close in three months and we have to use up the money. And, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. um, it's really interesting to try to make it a seamless build experience, even if we can make it a seamless service experience. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you might think, like, but maybe listeners, for instance, are thinking, like, okay, so that sounds like a bureaucratic administrative nightmare, but, like, why does that matter? And I think it matters for a lot of reasons, but one of them is that these sort of rigidly constrained boundaries around the expectation for services creates like a shadow of accountability that's different than the accountability to deliver effective services. And it means that a lot of resources, well, effective services as defined by someone receiving them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that a lot of the resources that could otherwise go toward Strengthening, um, strengthening operations, strengthening quality, giving people professional development opportunities, delivering, um, I don't know if like, I don't know exactly the right way to say this, but like more valuable benefit to clients gets constrained by how much resource has to spend answering administrative responsibilities that are kind of about this potentially shadow accountability layer. Mm-hmm. And so that makes me feel worried when we talk about that at a grand scale, you know, across the system, all the money that we spend in administering grants um, and the potential duplication that doesn't actually serve, you know, people who are participating in the program, definitely doesn't serve staff that are responsible for administering the program and may just be making, like, executive directors go crazy as they try to think strategically and long-term about how to leverage funding towards improving services. So it has kind of a counterintuitive effect. So on the ground, the average Vermonter, the average person living in Brattleboro, knows that they have to go to 10 offices or fill out 10 Mm -hmm. forms instead of one or see 10 case managers instead of one Well, and and, not get as good services in addition to having to spend more time and trouble on those services. mm -hmm. I would also add... In the sky, whether we want to call that sky Waterbury, Montpelier, (laughs) or the space in between... Uh um, That's not the sky. (laughs) That means that we're not actually monitoring the big picture about what being effective with our state dollars is. It means we're lost in the minutia. Yeah. I think, um, I hope that this isn't too, like, abstract of a thought, but sometimes I just think about, you know, we are familiar with the metaphor silos to think about the way that our system sort of creates easier to, creates, like, an abstraction out of what might be like a rising need or an interest in someone's life or a particular trouble. And um, I, it like creates a little box around it and then just manages those boxes. And I think 
grants are such an interesting area to think about, or such an interesting lens to think about the bureaucratic box creation, because it is sort of this bridge between the direct um, receipt of a benefit, whether that's just like a really friendly and helpful case manager that helps you work through a couple of issues, or whether it's like an actual um, like fuel benefit. Um, uh, I'm going to jump in there. The community receiving grants bridges those two worlds. And I mean, I, I'm speaking a little bit in generalizations here because the Agency of Human Services also delivers services directly, not just administers grants. Um, but in the box creation, I think we distort what's actually happening, our sense of what's actually happening in communities. So we become interested in the way that we're measuring effectiveness of the delivery of one grant, which may be something like, you know, the percent of people that say that they had their goals met while they participated in a program. But what does that really mean in the context of their lives and the extent to which the work we are doing to support the community partner, to support them, is effective? It doesn't tell us that much. And I think to make that very abstract idea very concrete, as concrete as I can ever make anything, which is not very concrete, <laughs> oh <my gosh>. <laughs> <laughs> that when we get in those silos and those boxes and that abstraction, we don't have time to make eye contact mm-hmm. with the folks we're serving and have the conversation and the intimacy to really understand the full scale mm-hmm. of the challenge or what a solution might look like. And now I'm going to pause for four seconds so Olga can say something if she wants. <laughs> Yeah, Olga's been trying to jump in here, and I, I'm going to say two things. One, one is a little technical. I just want both of you to check um, how strong your cell signal is right now, because I'm just hearing a little feedback. Um, so while I'm talking, just if you wouldn't mind quickly checking that. The second thing I want to say is I think what, what Drew said about silos and um, the restrictions that people are working with within grants is really fascinating because I have been hearing from a lot of nonprofits about grants in general, not just not just even um, state grants, but just grants they get from other foundations um, or other funding sources. And, you know, they've been saying that because grants come with so many restrictions, sometimes it actually limits what how they are actually able to serve their community for example um let's say a nonprofit's working with uh, mental health and people need support around their mental health and um a certain substance but their grant only covers um let's say the substance is heroin but their grant only covers um, opiates and housing. And so they may still, the, the provider needs to do something to serve this person, but to justify how they can use that funding to do that, they're actually finding it fairly limiting and at times feel that sometimes people are falling through the cracks, even when no, that's nobody's intention, including the funder. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Do you mm-hmm. see that at the state level or either of you? Do you want to respond to that first, Emily? Um, I think that's the primary thing that 
happens when we don't have that time for eye contact. And by eye contact, I mean that as an abstraction, because that's what I do, um, that encompasses the time and attention to understand the full scope of each human's needs and respond to that from an evidence-based, compassionate um, strategy that will then meet the big picture outcomes that we're seeking as a state. Mm-hmm. It, it makes me, well, do you want to respond to that, Olga? Uh, no, I would, I'd love to hear what you have to say, Drew. Thank you. Okay. Your comment, it reminds me of like two, two different pieces of the same puzzle. Like we've been kind of talking about the relationship between one funder, whether it's state or not to your point and one grantee. But there's also, and like what sorts of opportunities and issues arise there. Like there's the opportunity to deliver service. There's the opportunity to use those dollars effectively and to exert some um, some level of innovation and discretion around it. Like the state grants do have, and other grants do have requirements, but there's also flexibility baked in there to figure out the best way to meet needs or to, to do the work that the grant is hoping can, is possible. Uh, in its own abstraction. Then there's the limitations of the constraints around rules and also how much funding there is and how that funding can be applied. Eligibility rules being one of the biggest, I think, most fundamental issues in our entire service system, Mm. which makes it just by some ultimately arbitrary-seeming lines um, difficult or impossible to deliver services to some people but to deliver services to other people. So that in and of itself is a major constraint. Um, And then there's what happens when that, there's the constraint involved with one organization receiving multiple grants and having sort not necessarily conflicting, but as Emily was describing before with the like 15 different grants, but one, one program. So it would feel and all the different administrative requirements that come with that tying up resources that could otherwise being, otherwise be being used. So that's like one whole lens or one microcosm of the challenge. There's a whole other one, which is in the context of a community that has many different organizations and many different strategies um, to achieve outcomes, improve conditions, improve circumstances for people in their communities. They look around and they see all these different organizations. Some of them doing youth development work. Some of them doing employment work. Some of them doing safety work. Um, some of them doing food stability and food equity work. Some of them doing education. Like all of the different sort of factors of well-being that a community stands up services around to support. Each of those organizations is receiving grants and different funds. Each of those organizations is dealing with multiple different constraints. And what I've been hearing is that each one of those organizations has a hard time seeing the whole landscape of services mm-hmm. to understand how to evolve strategically mm-hmm. to meet needs. So, for instance, I had a great conversation with the Restorative Justice Center in St. Albans several months ago around um, the extent to which there are adequate employment supports for people coming out of coming out of a period of incarceration. Mm-hmm. And the interesting conversation unfolded was trying to understand who else in the community is delivering employment services. Do we need to offer employment services, or could we be could we be bolstering employment services that already exist with training about how to work with people coming out of incarceration? Which is so amazing because the 
at the state level, whether that's at, in the legislature or in state government, you should, we should be able to see the big picture landscape. But the deep need for the big picture landscape sits in communities. Mm-hmm. And the knowledge of how that big picture landscape truly needs to be transformed as a felt experience sits in communities. But communities have very little ability to see that big picture because of how the money is being and information out and the information. Yes, how the money is being decided and then administered and then who has what information about it. And I don't think that I think the transparency is critical in order to create conditions for collaboration and for collective you know, working collectively to build strategies that can support holistic community uh, access to services and resources. I feel like um, a lot of, a lot, we could have a whole specific conversation about, like, what is the information available about grants? What would it take for it to be useful? But I think one thing is super clear, which is that when organizations, including the agency, have access to information about services, what services are being administered, where, what kinds, to what ends, and within what constraints, we can start to put the pieces of the puzzle together in a different way. So, Drew, I'm curious, um, if I'm hearing what you're saying correctly, it sounds like some transparency is needed, but it's not there. If, if I'm hearing that correctly, why, why is the transparency not there? So this gets into um, an area that I'm really interested in right now. Well, I should, probably should have said earlier, Olga, that I'm facilitating um, what I'm calling anyway, an overhaul of our grants management system at the agency, which is really people and relationship-based, less technology-based. Mm-hmm. But the idea is that we can identify some of the most centrally important aspects of our grants management system, and I'm kind of putting that in quotes because of how variable it is now across the divisions and across the departments, wouldn't appear to be a system to one organization of Brattleboro that's receiving multiple grants from the agency now. Mm -hmm. But one of these areas is specifically information sharing. So right now, just to try to make it concrete, when let's I don't want to keep using groundwork, <laughs> but one organization um, receiving dollars from the agency is going to send a report back with data that says this is what happened during this quarter or during this year. Um, Let's talk about, say, HCRS and the designated mental health agency. Okay. So HCRS will send probably a pretty comprehensive report to the agency outlining all the work that's been done, answering certain performance measures with data so that, in theory, trends can be evaluated to see how has performance changed over time, how has um, how the quality of services changed over time, how has impacts on the monitors in the area changed over time. And I just want to highlight that when we talk about that, we're not talking about using that data just to reward or punish the community agency, such as HRS. We're looking at that data so we can understand how our communities change over time and how our community needs to change over time. So that's ideal, and in some ways that's like the punchline. It's 
like I'm trying to keep myself focused on Olga's question around like why, what's the deal with transparency, where is the information if it's not being disseminated and how could it be? It seems to me like right now it's a one-way street for community organizations. They do the work that they've talked with the state about doing and that they've have a written agreement around a grant. They send that information in and they may not hear anything back from the state right now. This is what I'm hearing from community parties oh, yeah. involved hmm. in our project. Interesting. Um, and that's also what I'm hearing from state staff is that there is there hasn't traditionally been a lot of resource put into generating reports that would go back to one organization, let alone a multitude of organizations named as a community. Or here's the information about how all the organizational pieces of the puzzle in your community fit together to create a fabric of available resources for people. And we've, I think there could be, is what I wanted to say. I think there could be. There are examples of where we have done that in the past, and organizations have really benefited from being able to see their data alongside organizations in other parts of the state to, to learn about strategies that have worked in other parts of the state to enhance services. I've not seen um, or I haven't heard of any shining examples of a community that's received data back in such a way that they could sit in a room, look at the information together, and say, how could we do better as a system? And what I think is important to highlight about this, and Olga, we've talked so much about government transparency and government information, mm-hmm. is that I think in this particular case, it's not anyone being necessarily secretive or um, a lack of transparency in terms of the information being available. It's that we could do a FOIA and get all of this information, mm-hmm. and it would be such profoundly unintegrated mm-hmm. information that we wouldn't be able to use it effectively in our community, even if it was sitting right in front of us as right. things stand now. So it sounds- I also think that we should... Um, Make sure that we remind our listeners that the views and opinions expressed on the last <laughs> half hour are those of the participants and not the radio station. It was very good of you to remind people of that, Emily. Um, so it sounds to me, again, if I'm hearing both of you correctly, that when it comes to information that that could be useful, the way it's being gathered and disseminated it could be improved. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, well, this is funny since Emily and I go way back and have had lots of these conversations before. <laughs> I don't want to be too casual about it. Like, I think she's right that um, it would be challenging for raw information that the state collects or probably, frankly, any organization collects mm-hmm. to just put it in front of someone else and say, well, here it is. Make sense of it. I think, what I'm really interested in is how do we create different disciplines for learning and understanding how things are going in one organizational context or across a whole community, mm-hmm. across a whole state, ideally, um, that promote voices of actual people that center relationships which are and trust, which is what change is going to be based off of in the future anyway. So, like, how is it going what are you learning when you deliver this grant program? What are you learning about how this one piece of the puzzle um, can be leveraged in a different way? What are your long-term strategies as a community, and how could we be thinking about grants as a funder in a way that supports that direction? Those are conversations that are not going to happen in, like, a transactional report exchange. And so I think we need to think bigger and in different, more expansively about 
what information sharing really means. Like, I think that the agency could do a much better job. I think lots of funders could do a much better job of turning around meaningfully synthesized and analyzed reports that reflect back what we learned from the data that we've received. Um, and that's definitely a goal of the agency is that we move forward with, with grants reform. And we've heard a lot from um, staff and organizations across the state and communities about how that could look in a way that would be really useful and meaningful. So On that note, can we go to a quick break, Olga? Uh, we can. And while I pull up the, the things to go to a quick break, I just have a quick question for you, Emily, uh, with your nonprofit hat on. And that is, you know, I, I love what Drew is saying about being better at synthesizing the information. Mm-hmm. And yet for folks who are down in the trenches, uh, dealing with some very deep needs in the community, do, do you have the energy to, to synthesize this information and, and to take time out and figure out what you've learned? So my fundamental belief in the universe <laughs> um, is that the way people stay sustained in the trenches is by having regular opportunities to see the full context of their work and to have a role to play in systemic change. That said, I am a person who provides direct services and is interested in serving the legislature, so I am of a particular mindset that's always half in the trenches, half not in the trenches. Mm -hmm. But I think it is an absolutely necessary capacity for us to find on the ground if we are going to continue to do this work and to do it well. Collaboration takes time, and it takes energy, and it takes money. And I think it's the only way we're going to do our work better and ever have a sense of satisfaction in what we're doing. Fantastic. Thank you for that, Emily. We're going to go to commercial break. And when we come back, uh, Emily, what what would you like to focus on for the, the other half of the show? I just want to keep on having this conversation for another five hours, Olga. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Here are, is a little news from our underwriters. Thank you very much for all to all our underwriters. You are listening to the Montpelier Happy Hour here on WVEW LP Brattleboro 107.7 FM, your community radio station. As always, the views and opinions expressed on this program are those of the host and guests, not the radio station. If you're just joining me, I'm your host, Olga Peters, and I have on the phone with me regular contributor, Representative Emily Kornheiser, and Drew Resley from the Agency of Human Services. And we have been talking about how some of our local community members and, uh, sorry, not members, but nonprofits are funded uh, through the agency to do work in our communities. Uh, Emily and Drew, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Olga. We were talking during the break, and I have to say, I really miss passing notes to you (laughs) in real life. So it's going to be a hard adjustment as we go back to session and we're doing this over the phone. But Drew and I were talking about pivoting to a conversation about how this grant structure 
impacts or affects the relationship with the legislature and how the legislature understands community experiences and how the legislature holds the administration um, accountable. Mm -hmm. I, I think that's a great suggestion. And we have about 15 more minutes in the show. I would add to that, that, you know, one reason I would love to hear about this is because we've kind of talked about ways that this system needs to be improved or that the system needs to be improved. But I would love also if we could talk about a few more solutions in this conversation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would love that too. So, Emily, what's your experience as a representative when you look at the Agency of Human Resources? I so, mean, human one thing services. that particularly drives me crazy in the legislature, very unsolutions oriented, <laughs> is um, we tend to get very far in the weeds of individual programs, individual grants delivered by individual, you know, funded by the Agency of Human Services that are delivered at the community level and everyone in committee lives in a different district and has a different community partner that they have in mind when we're having the conversation. So a very different end, there are different people who live in, you know, a different socioeconomic strata, et cetera. But it creates a situation where we are having completely different conversations because we have completely different experiences of this service delivery system. When in fact, I want to, to be thinking about what are the quality of life conditions that we want for Vermonters and what will it take to get us there as a state, mm-hmm. while still thinking about our communities and what that would mean in our community, but not getting lost in the minutia of what is essentially sometimes we act like grants administrators, which is absolutely an inappropriate role for us. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, it's interesting from the perspective of someone in the executive branch who does not monitor grants myself. Like, I'm not responsible for managing any grants, um, but I am responsible for thinking about our grants management system and what outcomes it as a whole is seeking to achieve. And I think the legislature occupies a similar position of needing to remain somewhat in the I don't know, needing, I shouldn't necessarily say that, but has the opportunity, the unique opportunity to stay in the clouds, <laughs> to stay in thinking about what do we want for our communities? What would that look like? How would we know? How would we understand if there were interesting disparities across the state that told us something different or told us something important about how a different mechanism for delivering services might unlock some potential there? Um, I think in some ways the let at least my perspective these days, is that the legislature and the executive branch sometimes both get themselves lost in the minutia of managing grants when it's actually the responsibility of the organization receiving a grant to manage it. And I think it's that we're all chasing after the story. Like we're all chasing after trying to understand what's happening. Is it working? How are people doing? Because that's why we're all trying to have these conversations in the first place and do this work. I love that insight. I love that image that we're all just chasing the story. I think so, but then it becomes like a pile-on. Yes. And everybody's like conflating, you know, the impact that one program in one area of the state has been able to achieve with what the strategy of a whole should achieve across the state um, and loses sight of all this actually very interesting, very important, very localized nuance about how services are delivered, what is the cultural response to those services, 
and engagement with them. Like we lose the juice of the story because we're looking for something standard and common at too high of a level. I, would, I think so. We like dilute the real story when we chase after it with our sort of abstract expectations of what we're looking for. I think I agree with Emily Drew that that is such an amazing insight. I would add to it too that there's a lot of pressure on both the agency and the community partners and even the the lawmakers to keep costs down at the same time. I think a lot of mm-hmm. folks are really worried about how money is being spent by the state in general, but for services specifically. So I think that when we chase the story, which is now my favorite way <laughs> to visualize everything everyone's doing, um, <laughs> when we get lost in this chasing of the story, and we're concerned with keeping costs down, we wind up in this situation where we focus on tweaking the minutia rather than recognizing that by investing big upfront, upstream, we can lower costs down at the level of the individual story. So I recently learned a phrase that's called existential flexibility. <gasps> and I like had flashbacks to a couple of years ago testifying and I think house healthcare about um, accountability and different ways of asking for data and looking for data and being like, can we just think about the, like, can we think about a program as a person? And which is a totally imperfect metaphor that we shouldn't extend too far, but <laughs> just thinking about how individual programs um, and I'm saying program knowing it can mean lots of different things, but has like an ego. And that ego, because I, okay, I should say that I think there's a story and I think it's a myth that um, there are too many programs and that that's driving cost, that we're spending so much money because we're all attached to specific programs. We can't just cut them if they're quote unquote not working, which is all resting on assumptions because we don't, we're not in the tradition of looking at information regularly enough to be able to make such a claim, honestly. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, so we get caught in this problem just that we've defined that there are too many programs and that we need to cut them. Instead of remembering that like a program is just a container for an idea that we choose to fund and that we choose to administer that can change and that should change based on how circumstances and conditions are changing in communities, just as we need to be nimble when we have somebody in front of us having a conversation or who's expressing um, some challenge in their life that we can address in a different way than maybe we thought when we started off the conversation or whatever. Point being, we're in a constantly changing environment all the time, and we require some flexibility and existential flexibility, which means questioning the basis on which we started that work in the first place. Not every strategy that we've implemented and funded is going to make the impact that we set out to make. Um, you know, as we had originally imagined it. Tweaks and iterations happen all along the way, and what kind of room are we giving ourselves to learn and plan for that? And so to go to solutions, Olga, Mm -hmm. since you seem to want them, (laughs) ever the optimist, I suppose. Um, Oh, yes. (laughs) Drew and I just spent the morning taking the Government Accountability Committee through a training that we designed that we're delivering to 
about a quarter of the legislature mm-hmm. um, in two weeks that really is supporting legislators' ability to engage in this existential flexibility. We won't tell them that, though. So I don't want to listen to this because I don't, I don't know how far that phrase, existential flexibility, is going to go with going to workshop context. Mm. But <laughs> all that to say, to ask people, to ask the big questions that focus on the underlying assumptions that build our communities, that shape our strategies, and that direct our funding. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that we're constantly asking those questions following those lines of thought in order to build a Vermont that works for all of us. And if I could jump on that, Olga, to your point about your question about solutions, mm-hmm. I think if the legislature and if the executive branch, all the different levels of discretionary decision-making, and I think they're ready for this. So I think, like, to the point about optimism, I think we're sort of entering into this phase of recognition that if we just get clearer about what it is we're trying to achieve and why it matters and sort of, like, what our principles and values are about what actually works, we could be less restrictive around the grant around the grants or the directives around services that we put out, the legislature could be less, I don't want to use fixated as as a negative term, but less (laughs) focused on the particulate, like the particular grant or the particular strategy and open ourselves up to asking questions of communities. Like, what do you think works? What are innovative ideas that you have or based in evidence or based in a promising practice that you would use this money to fund? I think if we could open the, the, like, channels all the way up to the highest levels of decision-making around what to do about dollars, if we created more forums for sort of collaborative and systems-based thinking from the community up around what actually works to support people holistically, what works to achieve outcomes. I think we have a lot more innovation and some of that existential flexibility if we detach dollars from very specific expectations and instead associated them with particular outcomes and best practices. I I like how you said that, Drew, um, about detaching dollars from expectations. Um, I think sometimes we look at our budgeting process backwards. Um, While we do need to be cognizant of the amount of money we have to work with, I think sometimes we start from that place rather Mm -hmm. than starting from a what do we need to achieve? Absolutely. I think that's a really important point. So what do we have to work with? Which I think in some ways there's a, and Emily and I know have both seen this, I think that there's there's an inclination to plug the elements or the components of our existing system into a vision instead of actually reassociating ourselves through a vision to looking or looking at our system through a real vision <laughs> that wasn't defined in an ad hoc way that justifies the system as it is and saying, what would our system look like if we actually did commit to these principles and these values and if we funded according to them? Um, I think the system would look a lot different and that's a very complex, not a simple conversation to have, but I think we get stuck in a, between a rock and a hard place, kind of. Like, we get stuck feeling like if we don't justify the way that we're delivering services now, or if we can't fight for a grant 
in the way that it's being delivered now um, or administered now, we'll lose it. There's a real scarcity mindset around losing it. So we hold on to what we have and we put rigid boundaries around it because we're, we're afraid that if we open it up to criticism, it will be gone. Even though, of course, everything that we do is deeply fallible and should be questioned because that's where the learning is and that's why existential flexibility is an important idea. It's because it's like the foundation on which we are open to challenging our assumptions and making different decisions, hopefully, to continuously improve the extent to which our services can make an impact for someone. And so to put a bow on that, I think that existential flexibility is almost impossible in an environment of scarcity mm-hmm. because the two mindsets mm-hmm. are mm-hmm. diametrically opposed to each other. There's that protectionist impulse that you just described, right? mm-hmm. which is straight scarcity mindset. And then there's existential flexibility, which is about curiosity, an ability to face criticism, an ability to question. But what I want to highlight as we close is that we are not talking about an environment of scarcity, even though it feels like that, even though it performs like that, and even though we treat it like that every day. Because Drew brought an index card into this room <laughs> yes. that I would like her to read that. Um, knowing that numbers are confusing, there, I think I can stand by that there is about $2 billion going out as an investment in Vermont through grants right now, and about 700 grants per fiscal year. This is what I have right now, my note card. And so to just give our listeners a sense of the scale of the system we're talking about when we talk about this particular mechanism of state spending. Yes, thank you for that. And and I think my takeaway from what I've been hearing from both you, Emily, and Drew today is just once again, so often we think of building a state budget or building state programs from the state down when once again we need to move from the, com- the community up. Is our thank you, Olga. Absolutely. Thank you, Olga. Thank you. Well, we are just out of time, uh, so I am going to sign off, but I want to thank both Drew and Emily for being on the show today. And as, as always, you can find the Montpelier Happy Hour on either the Vermontitude SoundCloud page or the Vermontitude Facebook page. And Emily and I will be back next week. We will be talking about school funding and school taxes and education spending. So I really hope folks can tune in again next week, 2 p.m. here on WVEWLP Brattleboro 107.7 FM, your community radio station. Have a great weekend, everybody.